as you're enjoying your turkey leftovers and doing some Black Friday shopping, here's an episode of Now I've Heard Everything originally posted last year. Lone Wolf McQuaid was kind of the start, and then Code of Silence was kind of the impetus, where the critics said Chuck Norris has finally broken in. It's a tremendous film. Actor Chuck Norris, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Chuck Norris doesn't drink coffee in the morning, he just has a mug of nails. Chuck Norris can dribble a bowling ball. Chuck Norris doesn't read books, he just stares them down until he gets the information he wants. <laughs> but a book is how I actually first met Chuck Norris. 32 years ago, in early 1988, he had just written an autobiography and was on a publicity tour to promote it. And it was one of the many, many times in my interviewing career that I wished I'd had more than just 15 minutes with a subject. I wish I'd had two or three hours with Chuck Norris. 1978's Good Guys Wear Black is what put Chuck Norris on the map. And you'll hear in this interview how that movie came about. And Norris answers the one question that everybody always asks him. So here now, from 1988, Chuck Norris. The reason I did the book, Bill is that Little Brown called me up and said, uh, we would like to do an autobiography. And would you be interested? And I thought, well, I'm only in my 40s. I'm a little young to be writing about my life at this stage of the game. That's never stopped some people. (laughs) (laughs) True. But I said, why do you want me to write my autobiography? And they said, well, we've been doing research on you, and we've found out that you were very poor growing up in Oklahoma, and a very non-athletic kid because you didn't have a father to give you the things that helped make you athletic. And then all of a sudden you become a world karate champion, a kid who was very, very shy and introverted and uh, wouldn't even get him, get him from a class and give a book report. And all of a sudden you're now an actor. There's got to be some philosophy or formula that you've developed to help you reach these successes. Well, then I got interested. I thought, well, these are things that I talk to. I do a lot of lecturing to underprivileged children, you know, and I thought, well, if I could put that concept into my autobiography and show people the formulas I've used to overcome the obstacles in my life to achieve different levels of success, maybe other people, other people could use that as a guide too. And you've had some obstacles to overcome. Big ones. Yeah. Big ones. And I, as I, you know, I have to be honest with you, when I first read that you had a book coming out, I thought, Chuck Norris has a book coming out. I <laughs> figured this has got to be real substantive, right? <laughs> but then I got the book and I, uh, maybe, maybe I'm saying this the wrong way, but I was really impressed. Oh, I was, uh, most, not just with the way you've written it, but with the personality that comes through, the person who, uh, who I had, I've grown to admire you in a way that I never did before because of the adversity that you have overcome in the way that I think so many people wish that young people could, that they would have a role model like you to look to. Well, they can. You know, when they asked me to do the book, I was a little nervous and I thought, well, I really don't have the time. And they said, well, we'll get another writer to help you. All you got to do is talk and he'll do the writing. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, okay. So I, I take that step. So I did that and he wrote it, but it wasn't me talking. His method of writing was very literate, but it wasn't Chuck Norris saying how he would say it. 
That's why it took two years to do the book because I took the book back and then I wrote it myself. And as you, as you get to know me, you see, yeah, it is the way he talks, but I had to make it in the first person. And it might not be the most grammatically written book in the world, but it's the way I express myself because I want it to be me saying the words, not an, uh, another writer. So many people today, though, think that you have to use something artificial to reach your inner strength. You have to use some kind of drugs. You have to use alcohol. You have to smoke. You have to, whatever it is you have to do, that's what you have to do to reach your inner strength. See, that's unfortunate. That's a problem, I think, today with a lot of youth. See, we basically have two paths that we can follow in our lives, a negative path or a positive path. And what that really means is the negative path is you feeling yourself, I can't do that, I I can't do this. I you have this low self esteem, and and you have no goal. And so what happens? Life becomes very boring. Now to overcome that boredom, you find art artificial substances such as drugs, alcohol, and so forth. Of course, the end result is total disaster. But just by changing your attitude and going down and and setting a positive goal and saying, okay, what is it that I want to do with my life? What sense of direction is it that I want to achieve at this point of my life? It may change later on, but what is it right now I want? Whether it's good grades in school, it doesn't matter what it is. Then you start working toward that. Well, now you have you have something. You have something to grab a hold of and start working toward. you got a mental image of something. And, and what I want them to understand is there always are going to be obstacles trying to prevent you from achieving it. It's inevitable. It has in my life and many other successful people I've talked to. But the thing is, if you have that determination to overcome those obstacles, knowing that it's going to turn for you for the better and having that faith, inevitably it's going to. It has in my life and it has in many people. And people got to understand that. Most people start toward a goal. They hit an obstacle and say, I knew I couldn't do it. And they give up. And you can't, that's when you've got to go for it. And, uh, it, it will work. It, it really will work. And these are some of the steps I use. But you know, there's a lot of people in this world who will look at a positive thinker and they'll say, you are sure naive, aren't you? Possibly, I'm, I'm maybe I am naive, and that maybe that's what's been so, so fortunate for me, especially in my acting field. You know, when I jumped into films, I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about acting, and I think it was my naiveness that helped me survive. Because if I'd have known how hard it was, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have done it. But being so darn naive about the acting profession, I jumped in there so stupid that I thought, well, you know, and I just went in there and did it. Nobody not told knowing, me. Not knowing you're supposed to go through all this anguish <laughs> and everything as an actor, right? I just went in there and just did what I thought I could do. And I look back now and it's atrocious. I see my first films. I say, God, you know, you are really bad. But the movies were successful. So there was something in there that people liked. And, uh, you know, the whole thing, how I even got into the acting profession. See, I, I thought my whole life would be wrapped around the martial arts with my karate schools and all this stuff here. And I sold my schools in 1970 to a conglomerate with the expectations of going international. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. We went broke in two years. And now they're going to bankrupt my schools. Well, to avoid a bank bankruptcy, I got them back and then I resold them and paid off the creditors. But now I have no schools. And now I'm teaching only private lessons to support my family and giving seminars. And Steve McQueen was one of my students. He said, well, what are you going to do now that you no longer have any 
karate skills? And I said, I don't know. I'm not really sure yet. He said, well, have you ever considered the acting profession? And I, I had I'd done a movie with Bruce Lee in 1972. I got off the plane, fought him, got on the plane, came home. But I mean, that wasn't <laughs> acting, right? I said, oh, and I said, I never even, I don't know. You know, I said, what do you think? <laughs> He's trying to get some encouragement, right? He said, well, acting's more than just having experience as an actor as a certain presence. He says, you may have it, you may not. Only the camera can tell you that. He said, but I, I would suggest you try. I said, well, what do I do? He said, well, you go to acting school. I said, oh. <laughs> so I called up some acting schools, and it was expensive. I mean, it's it's a, it's expensive to go to acting school. And I and uh, I couldn't afford it. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I started looking in the yellow pages of all the acting schools. I find one that I could go on my GI Bill. And that's how I went to acting school was on my <laughs> GI Bill. And so if you look, see, the thing is, what I'm trying to say is that I could have said, well, no, I can't do it because I can't afford it and just gone off and done something else. I said, well, there's got to be a way somehow. And I started looking for that way. And fortunately, I found a way. And that's what I think people have to understand is that when you hit one obstacle, well, look for a way around it. And it also takes a degree of patience. I think there are some people who would have said, I don't want to spend all that time going to acting school. I want to be in acting now. I want to be a star now. That's nice. Uh, you don't, you never know when it's going to happen. Uh, you've just got to stick with it because, I mean, when I started, you know, when I started doing acting classes, then I started going out on cold calls, right? You know, where you, there's 150 guys in line trying out for one little tiny part. And I'd get in line. I go, Oh my God, I know that guy. I've seen him on a hundred TV shows. I, I, I'd recognize half the people in the, in the line. I said, What chance do I have? against all these men who've been acting for 15, 20 years. So I said, this will not work. I said, I have no chance of making it successfully this way. So I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I started, I started thinking about it. And so one night I'm working out with all my black belts. And I said, uh, I said, I got to come up with an idea for a movie. And one of my black belts says, hey, I got an idea. So he tells me this story. He said, we'll call it Good Guys Wear Black. And I said, that's not bad. So I, he and I wrote the synopsis, right? You know, the little outline. And then I found this guy who was broke, who was trying to be a writer, and he wrote the screenplay. And I peddled this sucker for three years in Hollywood. You know? <laughs> and finally, uh, I just, you know, it, I'd reached the end of my line. I thought, well, no one would want, wants to talk to me anymore. And my accountant, the last source, says, well, you know, I have a young producer. Why don't you talk to him? I thought, oh, okay. He's 25 or 26. I thought, well, you know, what have I got to lose? <laughs> so I meet with him, and son of a gun, that's how it all started. It was with him meeting with another guy who raised the money. And, of course, when we fin did the film, then we couldn't get it distributed. <laughs> no one wanted my movie. And so he formed his own distribution company, this young fellow. And uh, and now and then he became, and in three movies, he became on the uh, American Stock Exchange. In three films. That movie's almost a cult classic now. A good Guys Wear Black is. Yeah, it's amazing. It really has become. After this short break, Chuck Norris answers the one question everybody asks him. Now back to my 1987 interview with Chuck Norris. Now, at what point did you realize that you got to do something besides just martial arts in your movies in order to be considered seriously? Well, when I did Good Guys Were Black and A Force of One and The Octagon, you know, in the media they're saying, Chopsaki actor Chuck <laughs> Norris does another movie. 
terrible. <laughs> you know? And I, I didn't mind them saying terrible because I, my, my movies were doing very well. I was, I was a people's actor, not a, not a, uh, a critics actor. And, uh, I said, well, but I'm getting tired of being called a chop socky actor. I'm not doing chop socky movies. My movies have a story to it. I do use karate in them when I'm put into position, but it's not wall to wall karate. So I thought I've got to lean more toward the action genre to break that mold and hopefully do a movie that's good enough for the media to finally quit calling me Chopsaki. And, and, uh, actually the breaking point I think was, uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid was kind of the start. And then Code of Silence was kind of the impetus where the media finally, or the critics said, Chuck Norris has finally broken in. It's tremendous film. I got tremendous critical acclaim and, and, um, you know, that was nice to get critical acclaim. But the key point is, does the audience like the movie? That's really what I'm more interested in, is do they get into the film? Do you think people are going to be surprised when they read your book? Surprised to hear that you've been married to the same woman for, what, 29 years now? Yeah. That you don't drink, that you don't take drugs, that you're not into all this debauchery that we're supposed to believe that Hollywood has has put you in. Do you think people will be surprised that you lead a clean life? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I'm not really, I think most people know I'm not really in the, what you consider the Hollywood set. You know, I'm not like in the, in, in the in circle of Hollywood. It's not the friends I have are friends that I known prior to my Hollywood days. I'm acquaintances with a lot of actors, but I wouldn't consider myself a close friends with any of them. Uh, it's just not my lifestyle. Is there one question that you are asked everywhere? by everyone you meet that you wish you could answer just one more time and then never have to hear it again? Yeah. Have you ever had to use it in the street, you know, for real? Have I ever had to uh, use the, my martial arts for real in the street? Here's your chance to answer it one more time, <laughs> then you'll never have to answer it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, no, I haven't ever had to. And I think the main reason, or there's several reasons, I think, but one is that generally be, having the knowledge to defend yourself, you you have a tremendous awareness of what's going on around you. And when you see something starting to materialize, you diffuse it before it becomes a physical altercation. And you can do that because you feel secure in yourself that you can. When you have that insecurity, then you get emotionally involved. And when you get emotionally involved, then that's when the the problem is going to arise, but, but because you have a certain amount of confidence in yourself, then you can look at it logically and take care of it before it becomes a real situation. And another thing too, they say, well, yeah, but your movies, you know, machoism and your movies and all this stuff here. And a lot of the actors are, you know, uh, Eastwood and Stallone are always being accosted. So how come not you? And the only answer I can give, I guess, is that my movies deal with the character uh, much like my karate uh, teaching days, is a man who doesn't look for it. A man who tries to avoid a physical confrontation, if at all possible. But if he's forced into the situation, he can deal with it. And, uh, and, and deal with it better than, you know, most people can. It's like in Braddock, you know, in this movie, mm -hmm. we have a little saying. Of course, every movie you try to have a little, a sentence that people will remember. And in this particular movie, the CIA warns me not to go into Vietnam after my wife and child. And he says, Braddock says, don't step on any toes. 
And I say, I don't step on toes. I step on necks. You know? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, if you step on my toe, I'm going to step right on your neck. And, you know, so that, but again, the moral structure of Braddock Missing in Action 3 is a story about an officer during the Vietnam War who is married to a Vietnamese woman. And during the fall of Saigon, uh, he goes to the home to get her out of the country. Out of, and, uh, and the home is blown up before he gets there, and she's presumed killed. And he gets wounded and shipped back home. Twelve years later, he finds out that she's still alive, and he has a 12-year-old son she was expecting at the time. Now he gets no help to get them out here, so he's forced to go in after them. He finds his wife and child, but, but before he can get them out, they're captured. And his wife is murdered. I have to tell you a funny story that a woman saw here, saw the movie in D.C. Anyway, uh, his son is thrown into a concentration camp, and he's thrown into prison and tortured. And he finally escapes, finds his son with 60 other admiration children. And the third act of the movie is him trying to get all of these children out of Vietnam. But my my PR gal here in D.C. said she went to see the movie the other day with, and right in, it was I, fortunately the theater was packed. But next to her was a man and a woman. And uh, and as I'm trying to get into Nam, the ones you know, there's a scene with me of the boat where I'm trying to get the boat started. She says, "Please start, please start." She's really getting into it. <laughs> and then when I meet my wife and child. For the first time, it's quite emotional. Well, she's crying, you know, and she said a lot of people are crying. And uh, and then as I'm trying to get them out, my wife is killed. And the woman says, oh, God, no. She gets up and leaves, leaves the theater. <laughs> well, the husband stayed there. His stomach, the husband wouldn't get up and leave, but the woman got up and left. She got so emotionally distraught Jeez. that she got up and left. And and that, you know, I I was sorry to hear that happen, but... That's what, that's what, what you try to get in your movies is the emotion of the audience to participate in the movie. Unfortunately, that was a little too much for, for her. I'm sorry to hear that, but, but that's what happens a lot of times. Yeah. If you can come to just point, just before that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was sorry to hear that, uh, that happened. Well, that's incredible. I've never heard of that happening before. Yeah. Wow. Not since The Exorcist, anyway. Uh, I got left that one. <laughs> Chuck Norris is 81 now, and yes, he can still dribble a bowling ball. Would you do me a favor? If you like today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a lawyer who represented everyone from Jack Ruby to The Blind Shake to the Chicago 7 and drew an awful lot of hate because of it. My 1994 interview with lawyer William Kunstler. Pickets around my house, bullets fly through the downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine. If you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.